praise you this morning that you are the God of history. And that from the days of creation all the way till now, you've overseen every step of the way. You've had a plan and a purpose. And we know that the ultimate ending is in your hands as well. And God, it looks, it looks crazy today. Things look like they're really out of control. And it's not the first time humanity has seemed to be out of control. And I just pray, God, that you would give us confidence, not in humanity and not in our ability to, to make things happen or our ability to, to make change or our ability to co even cope. There's just so many things that just seem out of control. But we know that ultimately you are the sovereign God. And I pray that you'll build our faith in that fact alone, that you are sovereign God and that you will take care of every single need in our lives. I just pray that you'll build our faith today. As we've praised you and worshiped you and come into contact with you, the living God, I pray now that you'll also just take the living word and you will change our lives and hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our nation is in crisis. I think when we look around ourselves, we see a lot of issues today. And this crisis did not come on us overnight. The moral fabric of our society has been rotting slowly. The changes have been so slow, so imperceptible, that many of us hardly noticed until now. In his book, The Frog in the Kettle, George Barna gives an illustration of the process of moral decline and bankruptcy. He says, if you throw a live frog into a pot of boiling water, he will immediately jump out and save himself. However, if you take that same frog, put him in a pot of cool water, and slowly heat it to a boil, the frog will stay in the pot not even notice the changes, and slowly cook to death. America has been that pot of water, and we are the frog, believe it or not. And the changes we've experienced have been so slow, so incremental, that no one seemed to notice. And now today we stare at a crisis, many crises in our nation, which are far greater than any crises our nation has faced in the past. And sometimes we wonder, how in the world did we get here today? We've been fighting the battle of either being a nation of laws or a nation ruled by men. Power is the bottom line as a groups of politicians, celebrities, media elite, and billionaire businessmen, religious leaders, try to move us toward globalism. It's called one world government. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel, you guys remember that? If you don't remember it, you look at it. You think about one world government, that was the original attempt at one world government. They said, if we get together, there's nothing we can't do. And that's the, it's the elevation of humanity and all of those things. And God said, no, not so fast. And he confused their languages and scattered them all throughout the world. Well, God intervened then and he intervenes now. We know from the Bible how this journey ends, but we're not quite there yet. God is not ready for the one world government that will eventually 
if we look at the book of Revelation, it will be ruled by the, by the Antichrist, who will persecute and attempt to destroy any true believers that come to faith after the rapture, and also the nation of Israel. Most biblical scholars believe the true Christians will be raptured by then, escaping the wrath and judgment of God on all humanity left on earth. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother series, actually, not just a sermon. This is Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. Some of you are saying, what does it have to do with Palm Sunday? This is Palm Sunday, the, Jesus, the day Jesus entered Jerusalem for the very last time while on earth. His journey was going to end in death, followed by a glorious resurrection. And all of this was preceded in history, setting up the nation of Israel, because it was through this tiny nation of Israel that Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, was to come. And he was going to live, he was going to die, he was going to be resurrected again, and he was going to ascend to heaven where he someday is going to come back again. See, God has this history, this plan. And we just know a little bit of all of that. This was God's plan. Now we're in the study of the book of Joshua, a, a, a study entitled Choose to Stand. These are choices we must make. And this book describes a battle of truth and righteousness, fighting a people so evil they were sacrificing babies to the god Molech. And I guess that's kind of where we are in America today. I don't know if you saw the movie Unplanned. Incredible movie about the expose of Planned Parenthood and really what they're all about. It just exposes the evil of how far we've come and, and how far this nation has gone. Now even though the battle, and we understand this, the battle is in the spiritual realm. It says your battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers of the air. It's in the spiritual realm. It's in the realm of ideas and thoughts and beliefs. But it always works its way out in the physical realm, which is why we must be engaged, not only in the spiritual battle, but in the physical battle. Ideas have consequences. Marxism, communism, Nazism, racism, progressivism, all of these godless ideas and philosophies work their way into the physical world requiring action to either acquiesce or to fight. In other words, you just give up and say, if the pot is boiling, I guess we're just dead. Or you can say, no, we're going to do something about it. Three weeks ago, I pointed out the fact that the Wesleyan Church denomination was birthed out of the anti-slavery movement, where ministers led their congregations in the fight against racism and slavery. And then it continued in the fight for civil rights for all, and continues today with a fight for rights for all, including the most vulnerable population in the world on the planet, unborn children. Now, in this battle, our enemy, and it's, people are not our enemy, Satan is our enemy. Our enemy knows that a frontal attack on the people of God does not work very well. So instead, he has become a master of seduction and deception. He's, he's a gradualist. He employs the frog in the kettle strategy with great success. He seduces the people of God into making alliances. It's, it's an old strategy. It's an old, something we must be aware of. It's an old strategy. He's done it before and it has always worked, or almost always. And I want us to see what we can learn today from an account in the book of Joshua 
This ancient account, as we look at, the title of this message is Deceptive Alliances. Deceptive Alliances, Lies that Deceive the People of God. Now, I want to, you're probably wondering, what in the world are we, where are we going? You'll figure it out. We'll, we'll all figure it out together. Joshua, the ninth chapter, it's on page 175 in the Bible in, in the rack in front of you. We're going to look at Joshua 9, the first 21 verses, as we continue this series in Joshua. Verse 1, now when all the kings heard of the, uh, of the uh, west of the Jordan, heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country and make a treaty. come make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to Hivite, the Hivites, perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon, Og the king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled were new and see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out from the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days, Okay. Three days after they, they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kiriath, Beeroth, and Kiriath, Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel. We cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. The Gibeonites, who were actually really close, had heard about Joshua, Jericho, all the battles that they had won. They were afraid. And they knew they had no chance to beat Israel in a frontal attack or not right battle. So they conspired to win with a different strategy. Deception. Deception. It's a deceptive alliance. A deceptive alliance with the enemy. And the question is, how does this apply to the church of Jesus Christ today? How is the church or how are the people of God duped into deceptive alliances and the lives of our enemy, making alliances that can neutralize and destroy us. What is 
our enemy's strategy. How does he attempt to make an alliance? Let's look at, first of all, the enemy's lies. The enemy will come to us and he'll say, number one, I am your friend. I am your friend. In verse four, the Gibeonites came as a delegation, as envoys or ambassadors. They sold the message, I'm your friend. Let's make friendships. Let's make an alliance. And there are alliances that we make here in America today. And all of the alliances promise something. They come to us and they promise us something. The first lie is the lie of hedonism. Lie of hedonism. Pleasure is your friend. If it makes you feel good, do it. It must be good. How can it be wrong if it feels so right? It's your friend, whether it's drugs or it's sex or overindulgence or gratification. What is there except pleasure? Your desires were made to be satisfied and, and hedonism and pleasure comes to us and says, I am your friend. I'm your friend. But Galatians 5 talks about those kinds of desires. Galatians 5, 16 to 17 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want. Contrary to means in opposition to. It means at war with. And we are at war with our own flesh or the own desires. Pleasure can be good. But a desire for pleasure is not our friend. It can destroy us. So lie number one is hedonism or pleasure is your friend. And we know that our country is, our society, our culture is obsessed with pleasure. Second, there's a lie of materialism. The more you have, the more satisfied you'll be. Buy now, pay later, I'm your friend. It's, it's called the myth of more, the myth of more. In a, in a sermon entitled Rare and Remarkable Virtues, a preacher said this. All he ever wanted in life was more. He wanted more money, so he parlayed inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history shows otherwise. This man concluded his life emaciated, colorless, with a sunken chest, fingernails in grotesque, inches long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie Insane by all reasonable standards. The myth of more. He made an alliance with more. I am your friend. Then there's the lie of diversion. We, we love diversion. We like to be distracted. And you, if you work a tough job or you've had a rough day or you know, a rough week or something, we like to be diverted. We like diversions. And that can include recreation like camping, hunting, fishing, shooting, boating, skiing, hiking, football, soccer, golf, basketball, baseball, hockey, and biking, watching it or participating, whatever. We like to do both. 
where activities like concerts or movies or theater, or even church events, busyness, we keep so, so busy we never have time to stop and think. And we say this diversion is my friend, and we have so many diversions, alliances with diversion. And the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. First John 2, 15 to 17 says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So the first lie is, I am your friend. I am your friend, don't believe it. The second lie of our enemy is, I am harmless. I am harmless. The Gibeonites looked harmless enough. They had worn out clothes, they had worn out sacks, worn out wineskins, mounted on gentle beasts of burden. Donkeys. It's a great disguise. It's a great disguise. When's the last time you saw great men of war attacking on donkeys? Yeah, it just doesn't happen. And without any weapons. The enemy got them to make an alliance with him because of the lie, I am harmless. I'm harmless. And our enemy, Satan, comes to us and he says to us, I'm harmless. I'm harmless. There's no devil. It's an imaginary creature with a red suit, pointy tail, and pointy ears. Don't get all worked up about this devil thing. You'll look like a fanatic. There are three strategies that the enemy uses to convince us he's harmless and to pull us into this alliance with him. And the first one is called incrementalism. Incrementalism, a slow, which is defined as a slow progression by small steps. Changes that are barely perceptible, changes by increments of small steps. And the progression, if you notice, the progression is always, always, always downward, downward. The sequence, let's take for example television or television sitcoms. The sequence of incrementalism starts with implication. Implication. The situation sitcom is a situational comedy. Sitcom. Situation use innuendo or they will imply indiscretion versus uh, like for example for illicit sex. It's innuendo, it's not explicit, it started uh, just implicit. Everybody knows what they're talking about and everybody laughs. Okay? That's implication. Then comes demonstration, demonstration. They act out immorality. Now they don't do it on the screen at first. You just see an unmarried couple enter the bedroom and then you see them waking up in the morning coming out of the bedroom or in bed. Implication, it's just an implication and demonstration. Then comes normalization. You see this time and time again in sitcoms, television, movies, even nice, nice movies. Normalization, normalization. Sex outside of marriage becomes the norm, not only on screen, but in real life. And, and the publicized affairs, breakups and divorces. Then we're surprised when, when someone accidentally shows virtue and, and refuses to sleep together or they accidentally stay together in their marriage for like 32 years, like the 32 year marriage of actor Mark Harmon of NCIS. And it's elevated as news because it's so very rare. So the impl implication, demonstration, 
normalization, the making it normal. So this behavior is now normal, and so we just come to accept it. And then it comes promotion, promotion. Now there continues to be an argument about whether movies or media or music merely reflect existing culture or whether they influence the culture. I think by now it's rather obvious. If you have a blockbuster movie in the movie set, they set clothing styles, verbal expressions, using the same language, same jokes, music to be sold, it's, a, it's, a, it's absolutely promotion. The intention of movie producers is to affect culture, not reflect culture. That's how they make their money, trying to sell something. And it doesn't matter whether it's Dumbo, the latest Disney movie, or Star Wars, or Shazam, or whatever it is. Sitcoms, TV shows, and movies today are no longer subtle in promoting immoral lifestyles. One of the first, some of you may remember this, may, you may not. One of the first that was promoting transgenderism occurred back in 2000. You say, really? Yeah, it promoted transgenderism. It was, a, it was an episode of Ally McBeal. Ally McBeal. In this episode, a man falls in love with what he thought was a woman. And actually, it's a man. And they make a great deal about physical characteristics of the male. And at the end, he discovers that she is a he. And the conclusion, it's okay to love him as long as he sees him as a woman. Seriously? In 2000, that was jarring. Today, if you feel a certain way, you can use a certain locker room, a certain restroom, or whatever. This process took a long time. This frog was in the kettle a long time, boiling. Now it's considered normalization, and it's promoted. Incrementalism, implication, demonstration, normalization, and promotion. The lie. And we saw a lot of these things coming, and we just said, ah, it's harmless. I am harmless. Incrementalism leads to compromise, where we compromise our values and priorities. And the next step is complacency, because we don't think we can do anything about it, so we just kind of sit back and say, it's happened, I'm just gonna not worry about it. And we forget the role. Yes, we are to love our world, but in order to love our world, we must speak truth. We can't love without speaking truth. We can't love without living righteously. We have to be the contrast that people see in order for us to truly love our culture, love our society. We must speak truth, we must live truth. Complacency says, it doesn't affect me, I'm not gonna do anything about it. We need to believe that God is big enough to, so we can do something about it. And I know, I know we've been told for years, for years that anytime there's a moral issue, that's political, and so we don't want to deal with it. So we, we relegate it to political, and we don't want to bring politics into the church, so we just kind of say we're going to ignore that. So we basically have been absent from the discussion, absent from the activism, absent from all of that for years because we've been told it's political. Every moral issue is a moral issue. Every political issue is a moral issue. And we are called to be engaged in that process. The first two, of two lies, I am your friend, and number two, I am harmless. The third lie is, I am far away. I am far away. 
The Gibeonites were far away, they thought. Therefore, they didn't think there was any threat. Now, notice how deceptive they were. If you read this and look between the lines, they said, we heard about your victory in Egypt and your victory over the kings, the Amorites. Now, they didn't say anything about Jericho because if, if they had known about that, that would have happened long before they left their country or more recently after they left their country. So they just left out Jericho and Ai. They just said, we heard about this. And we set out long time ago, long time ago. I'm far away, no threat. Sometimes we make alliances with a particular sin because it's far removed, it's no threat. I'll never be controlled by this, I'll never be dominated by this. Other people have a problem with that, but it's, it's far removed from me, it's not my problem. I am far away. And the fourth lie is D, letter D, I will serve you, I will serve you. There's flattery here. Uh, we're at your service. And insincere flattery is designed to disarm and curry favor. We heard of your great victories, your great feats. You guys are incredible. We're impressed. We will serve you. We will serve you. Now, we buy things to own, and then they own us. We buy to serve us, then we serve them. Now, let me illustrate. We have, we have friends who bought a lake cabin. There's nothing wrong with a lake cabin, especially in Wisconsin. You've got to have a lake cabin, right? Having a lake cabin. Well, our friends took every weekend, every day off they had at the cabin. Mowing the lawn, painting the cabin, pulling weeds, redoing the roof, fixing broken plumbing. Once in a while, and it wasn't very often, once in a while they would actually swim and go water skiing. Finally, they sold it so the cabin could own someone else. There's a friend driving past a waterfront marina in Seattle. He spotted a guy working on the boat, and he said, the two happiest days of my life were the day I bought my boat and the day I sold my boat. Some of you have experienced that. He bought it to own, but it ended up owning him. There's an acquaintance of ours. This is a true story. Had always wanted a full-length fur coat. Okay? She had dreamed forever, and she wanted for everything. She just wanted this fur coat. So she saved her money. She worked really hard. She saved her money so she could buy this full-length fur coat. Had enough money, so she went shopping and bought it. It was very, very expensive. Okay? She was not an animal activist, just so you know. Very expensive fur coat. And she didn't want to leave it and guard it at home, so she would put it in her car when she drove to work. Everywhere she went, she had to take her fur coat along so nobody would steal it. I mean, everywhere she went, we'd go out to eat, she'd go to work, go to whatever. She had the fur coat in her car, and then she'd bring it in. It was like guarding this coat. Finally, she brought it back to the store. She didn't own the fur coat. The fur coat owned her. Is there anything wrong with lake cabins or boats or fur coats? No, as long as they don't own us. Sometimes we serve them not they serve us. I will serve you. Take, take, take our lifestyle. We establish and choose a particular income level with lifestyle choices and expenditures, and we establish our lifestyle choice, and pretty soon we work just to maintain our standard of living, our lifestyle. Now I serve the lifestyle. I serve that. It can happen in relationships, a codependent relationship. Enter a relationship, expect them to meet my needs and serve me, becoming restrictive and constrictive and 
I will serve you. See, all of these things are pretty subtle, and we don't stop and think and pray about it very often. Alan Redpath says, Satan is not only a roaring lion, he's also a subtle snake. And the roar of the lion is far less dangerous than the hiss of the snake. Deceptive alliances. I am your friend. I am harmless. I am from far away and I will serve you. And the people of God bought it. They bought it. Why? Because they believed the lies and made an alliance. Why? Well, Roman numeral two talks about people's prayerlessness. People's prayerlessness. Verse 14, well, verse seven, first verse seven says, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live near us, how can we make a, a treaty with you? And verse 14 says, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Now initially they had hesitation because they were aware of this command by God, they weren't to make any alliances with the tribes of Canaan. But instead of asking God, they just took everything at face value. Have you ever been duped? Have you ever been suckered on something? You bought something out of a catalog based on a picture? Some of you are saying, what's a catalog? I know, those are those old books. We used to have them, we don't have them anymore. Maybe you ordered something over the phone. Maybe you bought something online. Maybe you were talked into buying something by a door-to-door -door salesman. And afterwards you say, that was stupid, I can't believe I did that. We get, we get calls all the time for vacation timeshares. You probably get it from, uh, it might have been the latest appliance, a gadget, exercise equipment. Well, the Israelites got taken, why? Why did, the, why did the Israelites get taken? Because the men didn't talk to their wives. No, no, it doesn't say that, it doesn't say that. I read an article that said executives would make 70% fewer mistakes if they just asked their administrative assistant for his or her opinion first. That's executives. But no, it wasn't because they didn't talk to their, it's because they didn't talk to God. They didn't ask for his direction or his opinion. When in doubt, when in doubt, ask God, okay? Just saying, ask God. It's called prayer. You know, and, and they had won all these battles, they had done all these things right, they'd gone so far, they had done so many things incredible, and then they just forgot to pray. They just didn't ask God. How, how could, you know, how could they do that? Well, I guess we do that too. Prayer. What do you pray about? Do you pray? Logic dictates one course of action. The Spirit of God was gonna give them a different course of action. And based on logic or the face the value of people, they were basically sincere but wrong. You know, you can be sincere in a decision, but wrong. They didn't have all the facts of the whole truth. Or they had misplaced confidence. They placed confidence in their own discernment and external appearances. Or maybe they were just plain overconfident. We just won big, God must be with us, we cannot lose. I don't know how many times you've done that, I know I've done it, I just, I got this, I got this, I'm, I don't need to pray, I, this is logical, this is common sense, and yeah, instead of praying and saying, God, what, what do you think? No decision is too small to ask God. And important decisions, especially huge decisions, alliances, 
huge issues. How many times has an alliance brought to ruin a life, a home, an entire church? They needed to know the truth. Truth is very important. Number three, integrity counters mistakes. Integrity counters mistakes. Sooner or later, every lie will be found out. Sooner or later, every lie will be found out. It took three days. It took three days and the truth came out. And in verse 18, it says, the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them. But the Lord, the God of Israel, the whole assembly, crumbled against the leaders. Why could they not break their oath? Wasn't their oath based on deception? Well, the leadership had sworn by Jehovah God, the God of Israel. And Kyle and Delish write it this way. They said, an oath simply regarded as an outward and holy transaction had an absolutely binding force. In other words, they could not bring God's name into contempt. A lot of our oaths, we say, I, I swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. You know, we've reduced that to just a, just to whatever. So help me God is invoking the name of God. That, that's, that should be binding, and, and that was binding to them. They took it very seriously. They had given their oath in the name of God, Jehovah. They had disobeyed God by making an oath. They could also disobey God by breaking their oath. Now, just so you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Now, three rights make a left, but two wrongs don't make a right. Just, anyway, just seeing if you're awake. Three, three rights make a left, but two wrongs don't make a right. Just saying that. They had made an oath. They were going to keep it. Integrity. Now, in the middle of all this, when you look at this, you say, ah, what's God going to do with this? What we've discovered as we walk with God and as the nation of Israel walked with God is that in the end, God works things out. God redeems our blunders. God is a redemptive God. And we must praise God for that. And we see that as a hope in the story here. Say, they are messed up forever. No, God redeems our blunders. God reveals the lies and he turns this curse into a blessing. There's a verse in Romans that I just count on time and time again because I just don't live a perfect life. I don't know about you, I don't live a perfect life. I make mistakes, I make blunders. And it says in Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Only God can do that. Only God can take the, the mess of our lives. He can only take the mistakes. He can take the issues that we deal with. Our humanness, our humanity, our brokenness. Only God has the ability to take that and make it turn around for the good. And if there's anything I want you to hear today, because we've looked at all those alliances and all that stuff, the, the good news is that God can take any mistakes we've made and turn it around for good. If we repent, confess our sins, and turn, God takes that for our good. Only God. Now, 
This is not an excuse to make those alliances. It's a message of hope for those of us that do. When we recognize our sin, confess our sin, repent and return, God can turn that situation around and totally make something good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you tell the story. You tell the nitty-gritty. You tell the mistakes and you tell the, uh, the sins and the but you also tell the grace. And I just thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are in control. We thank you, God, that you have a plan. You have a plan that included Palm Sunday, included the founding of Israel so Jesus could come on Palm Sunday to go to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be resurrected. And I pray that we would look at the history, the history of of mankind and how you have a plan always in place. And we're part of that plan. And I pray, God, as we learn from the stories in Joshua, in the living word of God, that you would inspire us, you would change us. And God, you would empower us to live life holy before you. And we thank you in Jesus' name.